Today we're in Isaiah 40. If you have a Bible, let's go ahead and open up there. And this is an amazing, amazing chapter. Again, so many times when we're studying the Word, we come to these epic places and you just know you're not going to do it justice, you know. But I I pray that God will use it in our life. Um, You know, one of the things that the Lord was kind of showing me, because we're starting like a a different uh, section of Isaiah um, some people even refer to it as the second half of the book of Isaiah. And so some of you probably know uh, that the book of Isaiah, which is a part of the Bible, has often been compared to the Bible as a whole. And so let me ask you guys a question. How many books in the Bible? You guys know? 66. And how many chapters in the book of Isaiah? 66. Okay. How many books in the Old Testament? 39. And so up to this point, we've covered 39 chapters. And a lot of people will tell you that the first 39 chapters are kind of like the law. You know, it it emphasizes like the conviction, right? And then how many chapters in the New Testament? 27. And there's 27 chapters left in the book of Isaiah. And you're going to see he kind of transitions from law to to love. Um, He transitions from like conviction, even condemnation, in one sense, to comfort and salvation. Not that those things aren't found in the you know the former portion of the book of Isaiah. They're there, but you just kind of see something like a transition taking place now. And so I don't know where you guys are at in your walk with God. I, I would say this, though, that as we start this new portion of the book of Isaiah, it's powerful, man. And I don't know if there's anyone here who needs a new start, who needs kind of like a new chapter, who needs God to do a new work. This is a really great opportunity. As you study this portion of the book of Isaiah, um, I'll tell you what, it is really, really, really powerful. And so let's do this. Let's open our hearts and let's ask God to really speak to us in ways that he never has before. And so as we go through this chapter, we're going to slow down. Um, Maybe as we continue on, we'll cover more ground. Um, But this is really an epic chapter. And I kind of broke it up into uh, five different sections. We're going to see, first of all, in verses 1 through 2, we have our comfort. And then in verses 3 through 11, we're going to see our cry. In verses 12 through 26, we're going to see our creator. And it's very important that we know that our comforter is our creator. And then in verse 27 is our claim. And Isaiah has this claim in which he says, what about me, Lord? What about my situation? It seems like my just claim is not being addressed. But then God closes it with our command in verses 20 through 31. And that is the command in the book of Isaiah here in chapter 40 is to wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. You know, you don't want to be like Abraham who went ahead of God. He tried to help God to fulfill the promise and he ended up bringing so much turmoil to so many people. You know, you want to be like um, Joseph who waited for 13 years. He didn't lose his faith. And then what ended up happening is God tested him. He passed it all those tests. And next thing you know, God used him in such a tremendous way. Same thing with David. He didn't try to help God on. He just waited on the Lord. And God, in his timing after, I'm not sure how many years, um, but we know that eventually he became king. He went through a lot prior to that. And maybe you're going through a lot. Maybe you're going to get tested. Maybe the enemy's going to come in. He's going to try to tell you to step out in the flesh or maybe help God out. Or somehow, you know, we, we, we don't wait on God. We say things we shouldn't say. We do things we shouldn't do. You know, next thing you know, we sin and we just uh, are not willing to just wait on the Lord, man. He knows what we're going through. He knows our struggle. He has an amazing plan for our life. 
And so for us, it's very important that we wait with faith, great expectation, eager anticipation. God, we know you're going to do a work. And so this is what we see today in Isaiah. And it's interesting, just real quick, the context is that God is going to speak this word to the children of Israel. And it's really intended for them as they're going uh, through this tremendous trial in Babylon. And so one of the interesting things, and I don't know if you guys caught it last week, but I want to share it with you. Like when you look at the book of Isaiah, in one sense, like the first part of it, the first 39 chapters, there's a lot there. But in one sense, it's kind of like moving towards the way that Assyria would come after them. Assyria, right? First 39 chapters, kind of like that. But then the last 27 is more like Babylon, Babylon. And so one of the things you'll find when God, you know, is dealing with his people and they're, 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 they're you know, they're going to get surrounded by the Assyrians is God delivers them from the Assyrians. And sometimes God does that. You know, there's someone that's after you. You know, your boss is after you. Your neighbor's after you. Pit bull's after you. I don't know. Something's after you. You know, you almost got in a car accident, you know, and God spared you from it. And it didn't happen. And you're all praise God for that. But it's not always like that, huh? It's not always God delivering us from things. Sometimes we get in the accident. Sometimes we get bit by the pit bull. Sometimes we do hear the bad news from the doctor. And we're going to see that even in that God delivers us not from things, but in things. And sometimes going through those difficult things are actually better for us because God does a deeper work, which is what he did when they were in Babylon. In Babylon, they were there for 70 years. They got disciplined by God, but God cured them of something that they were guilty of prior to that, and that is idolatry. And so um, it's kind of interesting when you look at the book of Isaiah and you see the two sections um, and so, you know, for us, as we go through trials, this is really, really, really helpful. John Corson said, after 39 chapters of the Lord convicting his people, he now begins to comfort them. And so look what we read, our comfort in, in verse 1 of Isaiah 40. He says, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to, or literally to the heart of, Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for our all her sins. And so here you have the word comfort uh, repeated, obviously, because that's the emphasis uh, at this time. You guys are going to find as we come now to the second half of Isaiah that the word comfort is found 13 times in this last half. And God says to comfort his people, uh, what for, or in one sense, maybe how this, are they going to receive the comfort? And, and to me, this is like the best part. I feel like we can just stay here the whole time because her iniquity is pardoned because the war in that sense is, is over. And I don't know if you guys uh, like that. I know for me, I just, man, I was just thinking, Lord, this is really the, the greatest comfort that I could ever, ever, ever have. And that is just to know that my sins are forgiven, you know? Because the enemy, he likes to remind us of our sins and he tries to keep us in that. And he'll tempt us to fall. And then when we fall, he kicks us when we're down. And, you know, it's a tough thing to get out of. But for us to know that if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, that your sins are forgiven, that your iniquity is pardoned, 
that he does not see the sin, that he casts him as far as the east is from the west, for us to know that, that is the greatest comfort anyone could ever receive. The forgiveness of our sins. And that, I don't know, maybe you're here tonight, I have a feeling there's a couple of people here today that maybe you blew it and you know you barely made it to church, you dragged your way in here and somehow God just wants to tell you just how awesome his grace is. Uh, Romans 5.20 says where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Now it doesn't mean we continue in sin, but we have to let that sink in. And so I pray you'd know that. I pray that would comfort you. That's what God says. Hey, Manny, hey, Isaiah, whoever you are, as you go speak, comfort the people, comfort them, comfort them by telling them that their sins are forgiven. Now, it's interesting what the Lord says right here, that her, that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, there's a couple of different views of the time, you know, that she served her 70-year sentence in Babylon. And so there are actually many commentators that take that view. But I'll be honest with you. I, I love what we read in Isaiah 61.7. And you guys know this. Probably the best commentary on the Bible is what? The Bible. And look what it says in Isaiah 61 verse 7. It said, instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. And instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double everlasting joy shall be theirs. And so one is saying, you know, it's all taken care of. You did your, your bad stuff and now you're disciplined. And, you know, there, there was some people believe that. I kind of tend more towards the latter view, and that is that God in his amazing grace is going to bless them with this double honor. You know, grace because of what Jesus has done. What do we deserve? We deserve judgment. We deserve hell. None of us deserves to know God or serve God in any way. But he gives us grace. And not only has he spared us from hell, but he's given us this place called heaven. And so, uh, again, I think that's what we're talking about. The war is over. I pray the blood of Jesus Christ will comfort you. I pray that. As a matter of fact, it's interesting how Isaiah transitions into this whole message of Jesus because look at verse 3. And we move now from our comfort to our cry. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so um, right here, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. So we're going to see this cry is interesting. It continues on throughout the chapter. Uh, number one, there's three things that we're going to see we cry. Number one, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Here in verse three, that's a passage that's quoted in all the gospels. And that means God really wants us to know it. Referring to John the Baptist as the forerunner to Jesus Christ. Matthew 3, 3, Mark chapter 1, verse 3, Luke chapter 3, verse 4 through 6, and the Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 23. All point to this passage in reference to John the Baptist, who was the forerunner to Christ. And so there in the wilderness was this proclamation 
what? For the people to make this preparation that the king was coming. And so that's what we see right here. You know, right here, again, notice it says, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley is to be exalted, mountains brought low, crooked places shall be made straight, rough places shall be made smooth. In those days, whenever a king or a dignitary was coming to your town, you would check the roads that they'd be traveling on in order to see, well, were there any potholes that we need to fill? You guys ever drive to a pothole? And you're like, man, that's, that's that messed up my car or something. I got to go get it realigned or whatever, you know, potholes, smooth out the bumps, tr- trim away any branches, remove any obstacles whatsoever, because the last thing you'd want is for the king coming in his carriage to your town, but upset because the roads were not right. And so he comes and it's not a friendly arrival or worse than that is the king never made it to your town because the roads weren't right. Now, so for us, we know nothing's going to stop Jesus. There's no obstacle that's going to prevent him from coming to planet Earth. But here's the question, and here's really what John the Baptist was getting to, is when the king comes, not just will he come to the city, but will he find a home in your heart? Are we really ready for that? Is that preparation for him there right? And so, you know, John preached a message of repentance from their sins including the sin of unbelief, and he preached faith in Jesus Christ. And that's where we need to be, always going back to that, huh? Repent of my sins. God, show me those areas of my life that are not right. Show me those areas, Lord, that I need to turn from. Anything that's getting in the way with my relationship with you, and Lord, I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we get saved, and in one sense, that's how we get sanctified. That was John the the, the Baptist's message. Remember when Paul the Apostle ran into some disciples of John the Baptist in Acts 19 in verse 3 and 4, he said to them, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And then Paul said, well, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. And so if you're, we're getting ready for Jesus' return. I mean, we see the signs. We don't know for sure. No one knows the day or the hour, but listen, guys, and I need to take my own advice. You know, the Lord is coming, and so the last thing in the world that I would want is for me to have sin that I'm holding on to, and then when Jesus comes, Acts 2, I mean, 1 John 2.28 says, I'm going to have an aspect of shame at his coming. And I know I was listening to Pastor Dale on the way in. We just kind of wanted to find out what was going on with his wife. And if you guys didn't know, she had um, a a procedure where they took out a kidney. And then she came back out of the hospital, but then she went back in because they thought she had a heart attack, but maybe it's a blood clot, a stroke. We're not really sure, but she seems to be doing okay. But anyways, he was just talking about how quick things can happen. And now the last thing you want is to be living your life, you know, you're angry, you're upset, you know, you're in the flesh and and you, you die or a loved one dies or for us, you know, Jesus returns. And I don't know why, it just really hit me. I said, you know what, it's true. We've got to pay attention to that. The, the Lord is coming. The message, uh, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness is get this, get this pathway ready and let there be genuine repentance of all known sin and let there be a solid faith in Jesus. We see in verse 5, it says again, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord 
has spoken. I think it was the Mandalorian. I was watching the Mandalorian. There's this one guy, he always says that, I have spoken or something like that, you know. But it's a big difference when the Lord says, I've spoken. And that means that it's really, really going to happen. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed is in reference to Jesus. First John, I mean, John 1 John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and we beheld his glory, right? It's in reference to salvation. And so comfort my people. Praise God. I pray that we have comfort just knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that our sins are forgiven. And as we're crying out, number one, we're crying out that Jesus is coming. Number two, we cry out, we have to get this message out, that all men are dying. Look what we read in verse 6. It says, the voice said, cry out. And he said, well, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. I was looking at these plants right here. I'm like, man, they never fade. It's kind of cool. And then I was reminded, oh, that's right. They're not real. We have these beautiful plants that bloom in front of our house every year, these flowers, and they're just gorgeous, you know, and they last actually a long time. But eventually you start seeing them all shriveled up. And, and that's what he's saying right here. I think in context, what he's really talking about is those leaders who are bossing the Jews around. We're going to see it later as we go through the chapter. God says, I'm going to get them. They're just men. But really, it's a message for all of us. You know, the grass is green for a season. Then it gets cut, whatever. Then it gets brown. Same thing with the flowers. They bloom so beautiful, but they fade away. They shrivel. And so Isaiah compares this to our, our lives uh, I mean, I don't I hope you guys are experiencing this. Life is beautiful. It really is, right? But um, a life is brief. And none of us know when God's going to call us home. I mean, it's glorious and it's green, but then one day it's gone. And that's the message that we have to get out there. As we're crying out in the wilderness, you got to know that Jesus is coming and we are dying. And we have to be aware of that. Not that we're morbid people. We're not morbid, but we're realists. And none of us has tomorrow guaranteed. And we're living in light of those things. Which brings us to the third cry. And we read it right here. And that is that God's word will be standing. Jesus is coming. All men are dying. And it says in verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. You know, we have similar statements as to the, the brevity of life that we see here in Isaiah over in uh, Job chapter 14, verse 2, and James 1, 10 through 11. But probably the best one, I think, that kind of elaborates on what we're reading is over in 1 Peter chapter 1. And I was wondering if you guys can turn there. In 1 Peter Chapter 1, notice what Peter writes. And this is one of my favorite letters in the, in the Bible. I love the way he just writes to Christians and he gets disciples them. But notice what he says in 1 Peter 1, verse 22. He says, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because, and then he quotes Isaiah, all flesh is as grass 
and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. And so what's he saying? He's saying, comfort my people because their sins are forgiven. And when you're crying out to them, tell them about Jesus who's coming and tell them about the fact that they're dying and tell them about the fact that the word of God stands forever and that word lives inside of you. So even though we die and one day we will die, we will live because that's the seed that lives within us and we will live forever and ever in heaven. And this where he says there in verse 25, this is the gospel. And so what I'm sharing with you guys and what you guys have studied for so long, it's not, you know, questionable. It's not like I hope it's going to happen. No, it's a certain certainty about the future. The word of God stands forever. And so the, the, the war is over because of what Jesus did in redeeming us and what we've done in believing and receiving him as our Lord and Savior. And therefore, we will stand forever. Isn't that cool? And we think about heaven sometimes and we look forward to heaven. And even though I want to finish my life on planet Earth, I want to do it well, I do actually look forward to that day that I finish my race. And so I don't know if you guys, how many of you guys think that's good news? That the whole thing is good news, huh? That's what we read next. Look at verse 9. He says, Oh, Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. Oh, Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, Lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. And, and I love this because here we see the citizens of Jerusalem, they'd be the first ones to hear, you know, and so they know that the Jews are going to be set free from Babylon. And so they were to go out and they were going to tell all the other cities the good news, right? And of course we know the good news in the New Testament is in reference to the gospel, right? They were set free from the slavery of Babylon. We in Christ have been set free from the slavery, the power, the penalty, and the presence of sin. And so it's really cool to be able to share that message. And so you guys, Zion, just in case you didn't know, is the symbolic of the heavenly Jerusalem. We are all citizens of Zion, and so God tells us to rise up and to lift up our voices with strength and to let the message go out far without fear, with boldness, and tell the people to behold their God. You know, and that's why uh, we always, you know, you guys go to the bowling alley, but you're still going to hear the gospel. You know, you're, you do an event, you go ice skating, and you're going to hear a Bible study. This is why... Um, you know, we are, you know, trying to maybe do these uh, videos and we're doing like a live stream thing and we're just kind of setting things up because we just want to get the word out as as far and as loud and as powerful as possible. We'll go to Mexico, do different missions trips. But I also want to encourage you. Are you a citizen of heaven? Are you a citizen of Zion? Are you a Christian? You know, don't don't think, well, it's just the pastor's job. It's just Greg Laurie or the evangelist. No, man, not at all. Every single one of you here have been ordained by God to do this. And this is why he's talking to all the people who are citizens of Zion. And so you go and you find your platform. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed to tell people about Jesus. 
You know, what he tells them here is kind of interesting. Go, go to them and tell them to behold your God. I like that. Because most people, what they do is they run to their problems, they run to their mountains, and they tell, um, you know, God, God, look at how big my mountains are. Look at how big my problems are. And God says, don't do that. You know, you go to the mountains and you go to your problems and you tell them how big your God is. And this is going to be, as we transition now into this section of Isaiah, this is really, really cool. When we start looking at God, when we start realizing how awesome he is, and we realize that he's for us and he's with us and he knows exactly what we're going through and he really does have a plan for our life. But if you don't know how big your God is, if you don't know how awesome your God is, then, you know, it, it takes its toll on you. This is why I love this chapter so much. Notice what we read in verse 10. It says, Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with young. So when was the last time like you really got to know somebody you didn't really know before? Has that happened to you lately? It's a really cool experience, man. And of course that can happen to people. We can and they get introduced to our life and then hopefully little by little we get to know them. Um, I know for me now in this section of Isaiah, I'm just getting to know God. I'm like, man, this is my God. Look at how awesome our shepherd is. Look at what he does here. He's not just like this omnipotent king. He's a caring shepherd. Yes, he will rule and be, bring evil to an end. That's good news. But he also tends to us personally. And that's what you read right here. He even, you know, when we're going through difficult times, he'll lead us in a gentle way. It's so cool, huh? What it says right there, in verse 11, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom. Isn't that cool right there? It's in reference to carrying them close to his heart. It talks about how he gathers the sheep. And that's what God did for Israel. He regathered them. And so when you're starting to think about this God that you serve, and we've been talking about it on Sundays as well, it is important for us to understand that he is a loving, caring shepherd. And he will lead us, and he will feed us, and he will take care of us. Huh? You guys probably been fed all the days of your life. When was the last time, man, you went hungry? <laughs> you know, really, really hungry. And God is just taking care of us. And every time you open up this Bible with an open heart, God speaks to you because God feeds you because God loves you. Now, if you open up the Bible and your heart's not really open, then yeah, but don't blame it on God. Lord, speak to me. Lord, feed me. And he will. This is what our shepherd does. Now, it's interesting what we read right here, how, the, how God will come with a strong hand. His arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. Now, again, there's two views on that. Some say his reward and his work are you. You're his reward. 
and you're his work. And I think there is uh, some truth to that, huh? The Bible even says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And so there are, some see it that way. Others see it when you look eventually to the second coming of Jesus Christ, you know, after um, we see the tribulation period, then he's going to come, he's going to set up his kingdom, and we're going to be rewarded during that millennial kingdom based on our faithfulness now. Okay, it's not going to be based on how successful you were in the eyes of the world. You know, they were like this great whatever. No, it's not like that. It's like, were you faithful with what God gave you to do on planet Earth? And based on that, God will reward you in the millennial kingdom. And then he will give us work to do. Just in case you didn't know, during the millennial kingdom, we're not just going to be sitting back on a couch eating grapes or something, you know, taking a nap, watching TV. No, our reward in the millennial kingdom and even in heaven is going to be work that we get to do for him. Uh, Isaiah 62, 11 mentions that. And so does Revelation 22, verse 12. It says, and behold, Jesus said, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. And so, you know, the thing about Isaiah, and now we're really going to really focus on this, is that he knows, God knows that we're going to go through hard times. You know, I don't know what God has for you guys. You know, I don't know what you're going through right now, but I know you're going to get hit, you know, because we live in a broken world. And so really pray that you take these things to heart. As we go through Isaiah 40, we see, first of all, our comfort. We Secondly, the, our cry. And then thirdly, we see our creator. Look at verse 12. Speaking of God, it says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. Who has done this? Weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Because a lot of times we think, well, God's not just. Oh, really? (laughs) Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a, a very little thing. In other words, he, he weighs the islands as if they're fine dust. He really picks up the whole earth like it's just a grain of sand, is what he says. And, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor to be sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. And so there when I, uh, the Jews were in Babylon, they had to know how awesome their God is. And the Babylonians or the Nebuchadnezzar or Russia or Putin or wherever it might be, nothing for God. We know there's a lot of complex things going on in the world. And people are looking at these nations and thinking these nations are so powerful or United States or United Nations. No, we have to see who God is, that they're nothing to him. In other words, there's no man or men or nation or league of nations like our creator God who made and maintains everything. You know, this creator, this king, he cares for us. Uh, he's our, our guard and our guide. That's our God. He really is an awesome God. Imagine, you guys, all the water 
uh, in the world in the the hollow of his hand, so to speak. And so if you were to take, like, for example, I don't know if you guys realize how much water we have on planet Earth. From what I understand, three quarters of our world is water. And so if you were to take all the water in the world and flatten it, just flatten it, it would cover the entire Earth a mile and a half high. Just think, God's, that, that's like a drop in his hand. And of course, it's not literally, but it's just trying to show you how awesome God is. You know, it says right here how he measures the heavens with a span. And, you know, when you think of the heavens, um, we know um, there's probably 100 billion stars in our galaxy. Now, there was a time when they thought there was 100 billion galaxies. But lately, they're starting to say there's probably more like 2 trillion galaxies. And so 2 trillion galaxies, 100 billion stars, or some say even 200 billion stars in every single galaxy. And you're just tripping out on how big, you know, God is. You know, he measures it by the span of his hand. You know, he calculates the dust of the earth, the mountains, the hills. And when he made everything, he did it single-handedly. No one was helping him out. No one was giving him counsel. We don't have to worry, what if God's counselor quits? No, he never needed counsel. He never used any of it. The only counsel I think he gets is from me. I'm like, Lord, you should do this. (laughs) Lord, this is my, you know, if you're really doing a good job, make sure you do this. And whatever you do, God, don't let that happen. Well, who are we? Why are we trying to counsel God? I mean, you know, if it's going to pray for things, that's, that's fine. But if God says no, then let there be a peace inside of us. It's very important that we understand who our God is. He's our creator. And there's kind of like four things that stood out to me in this whole section. His creation, his instruction, the way that he's over the nations, and the way that we have to watch out for misrepresentations. And those are idols, you know, Lebanon here, he says, even if you took all the, the trees, Lebanon was known for their cedar trees, and, and if you burned it all up with all the, the, the sacrifices that you could put on all that wood, it would not be a sufficient sacrifice to atone for one single sin. That's how awesome our God is. Why would anyone look to anyone else? Why would anyone look anywhere else for help? We see the futility of idolatry in verse 18. It says, to whom then will you liken God? Or or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold. And the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too uh, impoverished or poor for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. And he seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. And he's just, again, you know, for us, maybe we're disconnected from that, but, you know, I love my aunt, so who knows, maybe she didn't watch this video, Thea, I love you, but man, all those statues, all those statues that they pray to, it's crazy. You know, and you go around the world and you see all these idols that people bow down to, that people give food to, even the the chubby ones. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And that's what God is saying right here. The Jews were guilty of idolatry from these gods of the the world, 
Much of the world is, is guilty of it. And you get the, you know, they cast the metal, they cover it with gold, they put the little silver ornaments on it. Or if they can't, you know, afford the, the gold or the silver, they make their wooden idols. And you have to make sure you get a really good workman because you guys know how it is, right? You're lasting in the world you want for your God to wobble. And, and it's just crazy. This is your God? This is what some people trust in? In the first and second commandment, they deal with this. The first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. The second one is there's no images. And so it's just crazy to see what, unfortunately, Israel fell into. And for us, we just have to guard ourselves against having any other idol. No person that you would esteem or put on that pedestal. Nothing. Only God's, God's first. And so, you know, mankind should have known that God's invisible omnipotent, omnipresent, God's benevolent because by the things that he's made, his attributes are clearly seen. We should have known in the beginning with just the general revelation, really that's all we need, but we should especially know now after special revelation. But look what he says next in verse 21. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and his inhabitants are are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he also will blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. You remember earlier we were talking about how all flesh is like grass and the flowers and they fade. And so it is true of anybody, all of us, but the Lord right here I think is highlighting, but especially those guys that everybody's afraid of or those guys that they got so much power or whatever. God says they, they don't have any power. They'll be used to accomplish my purposes, but the one who sits on the throne is God. And he is in complete control. And he's going to work, even though we sin and he doesn't author sin, but he's going to use all the crazy things to ultimately accomplish his purposes. And things happen, and who knows, that leads someone to salvation. And so it's really cool when, when you look at it, and when you look at this, God is saying we should have known that. We, we've heard this, right? That, that he sits on the throne. Isaiah 66, 1, it says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and, and earth is my footstool. You know, when he mentions the grasshoppers right there uh, in verse 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and his inhabitants are like grasshoppers. I was thinking, why did he use grasshoppers? You know, because... I don't know, I was thinking like if, if God is God and he's going to compare us to insects, you know, he would probably use an ant or something or something smaller than a grasshopper because grasshoppers are kind of scary, I think. They're kind of, I don't know, they're weird. Why did he use grasshoppers? And I think the reason he used grasshoppers, you go back to Numbers chapter 13, right? And when the Jews went into the promised land, the land flow of milk and honey, they said, we see all the giants and we're like grasshoppers in their sight. And, and what God is just trying to say here is, no, the, the giants are not big where your grasshoppers. Listen, you've got to understand that I have this land for you. Those guys are grasshoppers in God's sight. I have a plan for your life. I have a mission for you. 
And God is just saying, and understand that since I'm for you and all those oppositions and all those giants and all those devils and all those demons, they're nothing. See, we have to go in and we have to enter this land. We have to possess it for his glory. He brings these kings and princes to nothing. God is going to deal with them one day. We will live in that land. And so um, one last thing before we leave this section, it does say right here that in verse 22 that he sits above the circle of the earth. And the word right there um, is in reference to a sphere, which is interesting to me because, you know, over the, the, the course of time, even here, some people think the earth is flat. Well, not in the church, but I'm just saying some people out there are weird. No, and, and even before scientists knew it, you know, the Bible knew it. And Job tells us that God suspends the earth in space. Other religions thought that, you know, God had the world on, um, you know, the back of, a, of an elephant or the back of a big turtle or, you know, the Greeks thought it was Atlas. Um, and God here just says, no, it's a, it's a round earth. It's a sphere and it's hanging in space. And I'm holding it up. It's just so cool when you read these things. Again, verse 25, To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. Who brings out their hosts by number? He calls them all by name and by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. I love this and I underline this. Not one is missing. I love that. I love that because, you know, for me, uh, we're talking about stars and it's amazing when you think of the number of stars, but I'm, I'm thinking about you guys and I'm just thinking about how much God loves every single person and how when he does his work, you know, he just takes care of them all. Not, not, not one is missing. Psalm 147 in verse four says, he counts the number of the stars and he calls them all by name. I mean, who can you compare to God? And it's just so important that we fall in love with God, that we trust God. Look at how awesome he is, how he knows all the stars by name. You know, Chuck Smith, he, he talked about this in, in his study on, on Isaiah chapter 40, and he talked about how the fact that here we are, just this little speck of dust down here in the corner of the Milky Way galaxy, we revolving around a star. You guys know the sun is a star, right? It's a medium-sized star. And so uh, the Earth, when you measure the Earth, is 25,000 miles in circumference. It's about, um, I think, 8,000 miles in diameter. But the Sun is 1.2 million times larger than the Earth. And so you could take 1,200,000 Earths and fit them inside of the Sun, which is an amazing thing. He said this, if you would hollow out the sun and then just leave a crust of, we'll just say 100,000 miles thick, you could put the earth in the center of the sun and the moon would, would, would then revolve around it and you would still have 100,000 miles to spare. I mean, this is how huge the universe is and, and the sun is just a, a medium-sized star. You know, there's one star out there, and there are others that are bigger, but Betelgeuse, it's a constellation in Orion. It's a hefty-sized star, um, bigger than the sun. In fact, if you would hollow out that star, you could put the sun in the center of the star, 
and the earth could rotate around it within uh, Betelgeuse. And so how many stars are there? Does anybody here know how many stars there are? We don't know. Like I said earlier, uh, on the average, some will say that, you know, there's 100 billion stars in every single galaxy. And there are now, they say, 2 trillion galaxies. And so think about how many stars there are. God knows them all by name and not one is missing. I mean, this universe that God spoke into existence by the power of his word. You know, I was thinking about how huge it is. And again, not just for information, but God wants this uh, for transformation. Now, sometimes we think God is distant, but, you know, we got to know that he is here and he cares, our creator does. And so, again, our comfort, our cry, our creator, our, and then our, our claim, a lot of times in verse 27, when things don't go according to our agenda, look what he says in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? You know, what, what, what difficulty are you facing right now? You know, what challenges, what, what, what did God say no to? And you're having a hard time with that. What didn't work out? Well, when they were in Babylon, it didn't look good, but God was cleansing them. God was dealing with them. And so they thought, well, Lord, you know, some people will, I, I had one friend, this is the guy that actually invited me to church, uh, and he walked away from God. You want to know why he walked away? Because God didn't even give him a girlfriend when he wanted one. And some people are like that. And it's crazy. You know, and they're like going through. And what, what, what we're seeing right here is, listen, God, he, he's not, your way is not hidden from him. He sees every tear. He knows every pain. And for us, looking at this claim, we've got to make sure that it never becomes one that we would ever claim. Because look what we see next in verse 28. He says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is worry. Weary, his understanding is unsearchable. You know, we try to figure things out. I try to figure things out. Listen, you can't. You just have to trust him. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he gives strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But here it is. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And that's what that's where at the end of the day, you know, that that walking one it is pretty interesting. Now, some will say, well, I like the eagles. Well, some will say, well, I like the, the running part. And I don't want to say that one's better than the other. But it's interesting as you kind of dig into things uh, at the end of the day, it ends up with a walk. And that is probably the most important part of it. There are those moments that we rise up with wings, wings like eagles. And so one of the things that's interesting, like, for example, if you were to compare maybe a hummingbird to an eagle, it's an interesting comparison. You know, hummingbirds, they're cool. They're like little helicopters. Don't get me wrong. But man, their wings are beating 100 times a second, man. And they're nervous. They're nervous. 
And they're exerting a tremendous amount of energy. But what about the eagle? What does the eagle do? This big, weighty eagle, man, he mounts up. And what does he do? He soars with these huge wings. And what does he do? He's just lifted up by the wind. And he catches those drifts. And God is saying, listen, don't think that your way is hidden from me. You know, as a matter of fact, you know, you can compare yourself to this young person, things like that. That's not going to be the strength that they need as they're fighting demons, as they're fighting lies. No, what we need to do is we need to wait on the Lord. God, I believe in you. I believe in you. I believe you'll guard me. I believe you'll guide me. I believe you open doors and no man can shut. And I believe you shut doors and no man can open. I, I, I believe in you. I'm not going to freak out. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to wait on you. I'm not going to sin. I'm not going to try to help you out. I'm not going to step out in the flesh. And as you're just waiting on God who knows your situation, then it's just so cool what ends up happening. You're like this eagle and then you run. You're not weary and you walk and you won't faint. And I guess for me, like as a pastor, I was thinking, Lord, um, I guess in one sense, that's what I want, Lord. We, we may not get, you know, their fancy, and I don't know, we're not necessarily healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. But the main thing, Lord, is that we, we walk with you and, and all the way through, Lord, to heaven one day. You know, what we find is that God wants to take our weakness and he wants to make us strong. And something I thought was interesting, and I just thought about this the other day, just as God only makes innocent those who plead guilty, so he only strengthens those who acknowledge their weakness. And that's us. How many of you guys here weak? I'm just curious. Huh? You're weak every week. I notice that about you, man. <laughs> every day. And what does that do? It just makes me cast myself on the Lord. Paul talked about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that his strength is made perfect in weakness. When I'm being hammered sometimes by this thorn in the flesh, this devil that has been sent to buffet me, it's okay. Because God, I know you're working. You got me right where you want me to be. And so our comfort is that our sins are pardoned. Isn't that cool? as we place our faith in Jesus, our cry, our creator, our claim, and in the end with our command, which is what? To do what? Wait on the Lord. Okay?